Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A couple of things before I begin the show today. First and foremost, I have to acknowledge what has been going on in this country over the past two weeks since the death of Floyd George at the hands, or rather the knee, of a Minnesota police officer. Mr. George's death is the latest in a string of horrific incidents in which black men, and in several cases black women, have died in the hands of police, often on video, and often without any repercussions to the officers involved. The anguish and anger that has been manifest in cities across the nation has been hard to watch, and yet, despite the destructive efforts of small numbers of individuals in the crowds, I am heartened to see signs that, at this time, at long last, things might be different. There are signs of people really listening to each other, and noises being made that sound to me as though real change is maybe possible. Like many others, I am not sitting still in this moment. I'm showing up to protests, I'm actively making changes in my life to be more in tune with the black community in my city, and I'm asking questions that need to be asked. And one of those questions is, why is triathlon so stubbornly white? Our sport has broad appeal around the world, and yet it remains incredibly less diverse than the population of any of the countries in which it is popular. Why is that, and what can be done to change that fact? Well, I've embarked on a series of interviews with triathletes representing minority communities from around the world in an effort to answer these questions, and most importantly, to listen to them and to learn. Beginning on the next episode of the podcast, you're going to hear from black athletes, Asian athletes, and indigenous athletes from multiple countries, giving their perspectives on why triathlon isn't more colorful and what is being done to change that. I'm really excited to bring this series to you and more excited still to speak to these phenomenal athlete activists and to learn from them. The other thing that I want to mention before getting into the show today is that over the past few weeks, I've solicited feedback from listeners over how to improve this show and make it one that more triathletes would want to listen to. Consistently, what I heard was expand the medical segment and shorten the show overall. So today, I start a new phase where I will do just that. The podcast itself will be shorter, with only two segments, but the medical question will be expanded in the hopes of making it more educational and entertaining. I hope that these changes are well-received. As always, I welcome any and all feedback. More than anything, I'd hope that if you enjoy this podcast, especially in its new format, that you'll help me spread the word. Let people know that it's here and ask them to give it a try. And if they like it, to leave a review and a rating. And of course, to subscribe. On the show today, Lance Panagudi has been on the podcast before in happier times to discuss what it takes to put on a race. Alas, with the pandemic, he's had to do exactly the opposite, and instead of put races on, he's busy canceling them. Like Michelle Lund from BBSC Sports, who joined me on the last episode, Lance is in a perfect position to let us all know how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting race organizers, who are not just supporters of multi-sport, but also small business owners and operators, and are feeling the effects of lockdowns and social distancing very acutely. Well, Lance joins me today to talk about how he's been coping and what his thoughts are about how to move forward. But first off, as always, I have a medical question to answer. Although the advice of the WHO and CDC has been changing over time, most municipalities and states have guidelines in place mandating or at least encouraging the wearing of masks in public in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. 
Many people seized upon a widely publicized paper that came out early in the spring, hypothesizing that running and cycling could result in significant spread of respiratory droplets and be a concern for viral spread. Consequently, many people wear masks when running and biking. But there's been a lot of misinformation out there about mask wearing, and it's high time I looked into it. First and foremost, do you need to be worried when wearing a mask when exercising? Is it going to impact oxygen exchange? Does it prevent offloading of carbon dioxide? And more importantly, is a mask even necessary? Well, I take a look at the evidence on all of this, and it's coming up right now. While it seems as though the worst of the pandemic is behind us with while it seems as though the worst of the pandemic is behind us and with more pressing societal issues coming to the fore those things related to the COVID-19 virus can seem a little bit tired. Unfortunately, I fear that this is likely only a brief respite. That's because the virus really hasn't gone anywhere and it maintains its same potency and infectiousness as it's always had. While it's true case numbers are down, and with that so is mortality, this is less a sign of the virus disappearing than it is of the results of the beneficial effects that lockdowns had, as did social distancing. Furthermore, warm weather is taking people outside and keeping them away from each other, reinforcing the effects that we had through the colder spring in the northern hemisphere. The reality is that uh, when the fall comes around, we're very likely to see a second surge of COVID-19 cases, and this could very well be much worse than what we just endured. For this reason, we need to maintain our vigilance, and we need to continue to be wary, and we have to remember the valuable lessons of the months that we just got through. And one of those lessons is that keeping socially distanced and especially wearing a mask can be incredibly important. Now, for some reason, wearing masks has become a political issue here in the United States, but the reality is, is that it remains a potent disruptor of infection. And this was highlighted in a recent meta-analysis that came out in the respected journal The Lancet. This uh, article compiled the results of uh, something like 10 to 15 different studies looking at the importance of wearing masks, both in healthcare environments and outside of them. Here, they found that within healthcare environments, the use of masks could dramatically decrease virus transmission and conferred very important protection to healthcare workers. But the type of mask was quite important. When healthcare workers wore N95 masks, virus transmission was decreased by almost 95%, whereas with surgical masks, it was decreased by just over two, uh, three quarters, excuse me, 77%. Now, fewer studies have been done outside of the healthcare environment, but those that have done unequivocally demonstrated a decrease in viral transmission with both social distancing and mask use. But best of all, when both masks and social distancing were uh, used together. Now, back in early April, a paper from Belgium got widespread attention, especially in the running and cycling world. This paper showed computer modeling that suggested the spread of respiratory droplets from runners and cyclists was quite pronounced, mostly because of the heavy breathing that these activities tend to you know, uh, result in. And because of this, it uh, caused a lot of stir in the you know, running and cycling social media. 
Now, the paper was taken completely out of context, mostly because it was computer modeling that was used and no environmental factors were taken into account, and the authors themselves were pretty mortified the way their results were used in social media and across even mainstream media to suggest that running and cycling would confer such incredible risks. Their paper was purely hypothetical and meant to demonstrate the power of computer modeling to show how it could be applied to infectious disease. As an example of how these kinds of things can be taken out of context, other studies were done in laboratories to show how the virus could stay infective in the air for many hours at a time. And these results, too, were picked up by media and published widely and uh, caused a lot of fear at the time. But what was not picked up by the media was the details of the paper and how the study was done. In fact, what the authors did in that case was they actually took uh, respiratory droplets that were covered in virus or contained the virus and artificially suspended them in the air for hours, not so much to show that the virus stayed airborne, but rather to show that the virus could remain infective if it stayed airborne over such a long period of time. In the real world, viral particles and respiratory droplets don't stay airborne for nearly that long. In fact, we know very well that once exhaled, uh, respiratory droplets drop to the ground within seconds, maybe a couple of minutes. So this whole notion that there are respiratory viral particles floating in the air for hours at a time is simply not the actual case in the real world. Computer modeling and you know laboratory um, environments are not what goes on when somebody is running or biking. And so it's not really clear uh, how to interpret this data and how to extrapolate it to when we're outside and actually interacting with other people. Now, there's been other studies on top of this that show uh, that there have been real-world events where there have been significant numbers of people infected where people were singing. And uh, some of the early uh, real big uh, infective events were choir practices. One of them occurred in the Northwest in the Seattle area, where one individual showed up at a choir practice feeling a little bit under the weather, but not recognizing that he was infected with COVID-19 and went on to infect something like a third or half of the people that were at the practice that day. And several of them unfortunately went on to die. And so when taken all together, this notion that breathing heavily can exhale lots of viral particles, uh, the fact that uh, computer modeling suggests that uh, staying in the wake of somebody who's running or biking uh, exposes you to a lot of these particles, and this idea that these particles can stay infective in the air for hours, you can understand that uh, it's not really clear how to react when you're going to go outside and partake in exercise. So where does this leave us? We know without a question that masks in public are a great idea. And until we have effective treatment, and especially a vaccine, we need to consider wearing a mask. Pretty much at all times, we're going to be interacting with others, especially if we are indoors and not subjected to the environmental effects of wind and sunshine and potentially rain and other things like that. And this is true even now when cases are falling and when the number of people in the community that are infected might not be quite as high, simply because this virus has such dramatic impacts and remains quite infectious. But the question remains is, do we need to wear a mask while we're exercising? Well, many have taken the decision that they are going to, and it is not my intention to discourage that. I think that if you want to wear a mask, then you should. But 
let's just take a look at whether or not you need to, because there are uh, several questions uh, that are out there, and you could, uh, just by doing a cursory search on the internet, come up with a lot of people who say that, well, you know, not only should I not wear a mask when I am exercising, I shouldn't wear one at all, because there are all kinds of negative effects that can happen. So let's take a moment just to talk about masks, because not all masks are the same, because there are different masks that have been constructed for different functions. As you'll recall earlier, I mentioned that healthcare workers wearing different types of masks had different kinds of reductions in the types of uh, infectivity from the COVID-19 virus. This is because in the healthcare environment, many healthcare workers will wear what's called an N95 mask. And an N95 mask is simply a very tight-fitting, uh, very uh, close-to-the-face mask with a very, very tight weave. And what it is meant to do and the reason for the designation of 95 is that it is meant to filter out 95% of any particles greater than 0.3 microns. So really, really tiny things here. We're talking about airborne types of diseases, diseases that stay in the air for long periods of time. Uh, these are things like tuberculosis or the measles virus, which does not float on respiratory droplets, but actually gets into the air and floats on its own as a virus. Now contrast that to a surgical mask, which uh, I'm sure many of you have seen. They look like they are fabric or a paper mask, but they're not. They're actually a fairly high-tech sort of um, textile. Uh, they're very tight weave, but they're more porous than an N95. And uh, as a result, they don't filter out airborne particles like tuberculosis or measles, but they're excellent for droplet-borne diseases like influenza. And most of the time, coronaviruses and possibly COVID-19 as well. Although, as that Lancet paper showed, when just wearing surgical masks, people were more likely to get infected with COVID-19 than if they were wearing N95s. And the reason for that is because surgical masks simply allow a lot of in-training of air from around the mask, and this can result in infection in the environment where you have someone coughing a lot and expelling a lot of viral particles. So the N95 better for COVID-19 for healthcare workers, but surgical masks do a pretty good job all the same. And then we have cloth masks. Uh, these are the homemade masks that uh, people are making. Uh, Iron Man has even started making them. Buffs are another example. Now, these aren't medically graded simply because they have significantly more pores. They're not the, you know, the uh, manufactured textile. Those are just made out of cloth. Uh, sometimes they can fit well and sometimes even better than the surgical masks. But because they have these larger pores, that's really what matters. Now, the point of a cloth mask isn't so much to protect the wearer of the mask, but rather to protect everybody around the wearer of the mask. Because if somebody wearing the mask has COVID-19 and they cough, what the mask effectively does is retain the droplets within the mask. It doesn't allow many of those droplets carrying viral particles to escape the mask. But Viral particles that are circulating in the air can still penetrate those cloth masks. And so wearing a cloth mask doesn't give you a lot of protection, but it does a pretty good job at protecting everybody else around you. Now, you may think, well, why should I wear a mask if I'm not going to protect myself? Well, it's kind of like herd immunity. 
people talk a lot about COVID-19 and they're, they're anxious for herd immunity because if enough people are infected and have had this disease, then we'll, we'll gain immunity across the population so that there's not a lot of people left who can get infected. Well, the same thing goes for masks. If enough people wear masks, then the likelihood of the people who have the virus being able to uh, spread it around goes down very dramatically. Whereas if people don't wear masks, then they're going to keep coughing and spreading the virus around. And even the people who are wearing masks are going to be susceptible. So again, these cloth masks are quite effective for reducing spread simply because they keep the virus in amongst those people who actually have it. I think we could probably pretty much all agree that masks, for the most part, are a good thing and a good idea. But that's not to say there aren't some downsides, or at least that there aren't some people out there suggesting that there are some downsides to wearing masks. And we'll seize on those downsides to back up their political viewpoints in order to not wear them. I'm sure you're all familiar with the many videos out there on YouTube and Facebook, uh, the p very popular meme of Karen uh, sitting in her car, lamenting having to wear a mask for 15 minutes and just being unable to do so because she's too hot, too humid, and finding it too difficult to breathe. Um, usually I uh, respond to these with uh, a brief sigh and then go back to work in my N95 and take care of people who also chose not to wear a mask and as a result are very ill. But I digress. Now, surgical masks and uh, any type of masks really uh, have been purported by these people to have all manner of problems. Uh, and most of these results uh, or most of these are purported to be related to the fact that the mask somehow restricts the amount of oxygen getting into the breather uh, or will impair the ability to remove carbon dioxide and result in a buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood. Now, before we really get into the science of that, we should just go back and revisit the physiology of breathing. Uh, you may remember, of course, that uh, breathing serves two purposes, to bring oxygen in from the atmosphere in order to get it into your blood and then to your working muscles and the rest of your cells that require oxygen. And metabolism in the uh, body, the burning of fuels, the combination with oxygen produces carbon dioxide, which has to be removed because carbon dioxide is itself a poison. And we do that by, uh, you know, exchanging it at the cellular level, taking oxygen out of the blood, exchanging it for a carbon dioxide uh, molecule, which is then brought to the lungs. And when we exhale, we breathe out that carbon dioxide into the environment. And with a mask, so the theory goes from the people who don't like wearing masks, they feel that uh, the uh, resistance that the mask is providing when they have to breathe, and it's no question, masks do offer a certain amount of resistance, uh, they feel that this is somehow impairing uh, oxygenation and the removal of carbon dioxide. Now, that resistance, I should point out, is uh, seen on other devices that I've talked about on this podcast in the past, the AeroFit, for example, or the GO2. Both devices that uh, have no scientific merit whatsoever in improving your training. So if you're wearing a mask hoping to get the cheap version of either the AeroFit or the GO2, I regret to say that uh, just like those devices don't work, neither will the mask. Now, it would be very easy for me at this point to just call BS on all of the claims of uh, the people who uh, don't want to wear masks because of these uh, very um, unrealistic medical claims, but... You wouldn't be listening to the podcast if you just wanted me to tell you BS and not provide evidence. Fortunately, 
all of the questions related to whether or not wearing masks uh, causes uh, problems with oxygenation or buildup of carbon dioxide or even uh, some kind of impairment in exercise capacity have actually been studied in, uh, prior to this pandemic. Both N95s and surgical masks have been evaluated in healthcare workers on a treadmill. Now, this wasn't running. Uh, this was rather walking at a pace that uh, was meant to simulate the kind of activity level that healthcare workers will be doing. Now, if uh, you know any nurses or if you know my wife, for example, who walks when she uh, is working, uh, that uh, pace is actually going to be somewhere around a, um, oh, I don't know, four to four and a half hour marathon pace. So you could uh, pretty much consider this to be actual exercise anyways. Nonetheless, uh, these folks weren't actually running. They were wearing masks while uh, on a treadmill, walking fairly briskly. And uh, they looked, uh, the first paper I found looked at N95 masks. And these were N95 with and without exhalation valves. You've probably seen these N95s that have these little plastic squares on them. That plastic square is a valve to allow for exhalation. And that particular study found no significant differences in any of the variables they looked at. Uh, specifically, after uh, 30, excuse me, after one hour of walking on a treadmill, if you walked with the N95, if you walked with an N95 with a heart with a valve, or if you walked with no N95, you had no difference in your heart rate, your respiratory rate, the tidal volume, meaning the size of your breath, your oxygenation, or the carbon dioxide in your blood. Absolutely no difference after one hour, regardless of whether or not you wore a mask with a valve, without a valve, or no mask at all. Now, there were some non-significant increases seen specifically in tidal volume, uh, anywhere from 38 to 150 milliliters, which is really, really small when you consider most people are breathing about 500 to 600 milliliters of uh, air on a breath. And uh, this was also seen with uh, a non-significant, very mild decrease in respiratory rate uh, over an hour of around three breaths per minute. And this was seen mostly in people who were using the uh, N95 masks without a valve. Interestingly, people had higher respiratory rates when they used the mask with a valve, which is kind of unusual. You wouldn't have expected that. Now, there were very, very small, but not clinically or statistically significant increases in blood CO2 levels. Some studies have found that patients who have pre-existing lung disease, specifically COPD, can actually retain carbon dioxide. And this has to do with the fact that the N95 mask is very tight-fitting, but there is a space within the mask around your face. And when you exhale, not all of that air gets out of the mask, and you may re-inhale some of the air that you've exhaled. And so this constant recirculation of air can result in retention of carbon dioxide. But again, this only happens in patients who have pre-existing lung disease and has only been seen when studied in those kinds of patients. Finally, I should point out, this is not seen in surgical masks. This is only seen with N95s. So the take-home would be, if you have some kind of pre-existing lung disease, don't wear an N95. If you are in healthcare and you are wearing an N95, take breaks. Take it off once every hour or so for about five minutes, and you won't have any problems. You shouldn't be exercising with N95s because it's really not appropriate, and it's not indicated when you're outdoors exercising anyways. 
Now, a study on surgical masks used very similar methods. Took healthcare workers, put them on a treadmill. This time, it only had them exercising for 30 minutes, 30 minutes with, and then 30 minutes without. And in this case, the results were pretty much exactly the same on all of the ventilatory measures, all of the blood gas measures, but they did find some other interesting things in this particular study that I think are worth noticing. Uh, excuse me, I think are worth noting. Um, here they actually looked at temperature as well, because a lot of people have complained that, oh, wearing the surgical mask makes me feel hot. And while they found no temperature change in terms of like body temperature, when you actually measure, you know, internal temperatures, they did find a slightly higher temperature when wearing a mask on the cheek, which is covered by the mask. A whopping 1.76 degrees Celsius increase of temperature on the cheek when wearing a mask than when not wearing the mask. Now, in this particular study, looking at surgical masks, uh, heart rate was higher by 10 beats per minute, but uh, this was not statistically significant. And interestingly, even though heart rate was found to be a little bit higher, the uh, participants in the study didn't notice it. Uh, they didn't uh, report any difference in their perceived exertion. And similarly, respiratory rate increased by one breath per minute. But again, none of the participants noticed any respiratory or excuse me, any uh, uh, perceived uh, exertion increase. Now, this again was not running. This was walking at a fairly brisk rate. And so one would question if you were wearing a surgical mask, not a cloth mask, cloth masks won't have the same resistance as a surgical mask. But if you were wearing a surgical mask and you were running or biking, would the heart rate and respiratory rate increases be higher? And would you then have uh, a perceived exertion? Would you notice it? So that that that's something that you know has not been looked at. And I think if you extrapolated, you potentially would expect to see something. So the studies clearly show that masks don't impact any of uh, oxygenation, carbon dioxide retention. They don't affect any of your respiratory or cardiovascular types of physiologic components. So there's really absolutely no reason not to be wearing a mask at any time. But the question comes back to, do you need a mask for exercising? And once again, if you're wearing one, it is not my intention to discourage it. But this is really intended for people who are thinking about it. People who may have you know, been told by others that you should be, or people who have seen some of these studies and are worrying about it. Well, I'll tell you that personally, I don't wear one when I'm running or biking alone. And this is based on my understanding both of viral transmission and also on personal experience. Now, viral transmission isn't based on experimental computer modeling. It isn't based on laboratory experiments of suspending viral particles in the air, but it is dependent on real-world situations. And it's going to depend on three different things. How much viral particle are you going to see in the air at any one time? How much time are you going to be exposed to them? And what's your susceptibility to infection? Now, clearly nothing's going to be able to be done to the latter of these. I mean, your susceptibility to infection is likely going to be unchanged unless you've already had this disease, in which case you will likely have some immunity conferred to you, but how long that immunity lasts is still to be determined. The amount of viral particles in the air from an asymptomatic cyclist or runner is unknown. But based on what we've seen in studies of singers or people speaking at very loud voices, we can suspect it may actually be pretty high. However, outdoors, when exposed to wind, sun, different levels of humidity, humidity etc., 
we don't know how much of that viral particle actually stays in the immediate vicinity of that individual. And in fact, we can expect that it actually stays, it actually is very, very low. So time of exposure then becomes the most important thing. And think about it, when you're riding, when you're running, how long are you actually in close contact with that individual? When I'm running, I run by people fairly quickly. If I'm running behind someone, I don't tend to run right behind them for very long. I tend to run behind them, but, you know, I'll catch up to them and pass them pretty quickly. I definitely don't stay within, you know, a meter or even two meters behind someone when I'm running for any length of time. Similarly, when I'm biking, I try not to stay in a draft zone at all. I just consider as if, you know, I'm riding by myself. And if I'm riding out there and I'm coming up on somebody, I consider like this is a triathlon. I stay out of a draft zone and I pass people fairly quickly. So then it comes down to that real world experience. Think to yourself, have you ever caught a cold just out on a run or biking? Colds are caused by coronaviruses, different coronaviruses to be clear. The COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus with a significantly higher mortality and morbidity, but still coronaviruses will still act like coronaviruses in a lot of ways. Personally, I can't think of a single time I went out for a run or went out for a bike ride and caught a cold. And I catch a lot of colds. But I can usually trace them back to specific incidents, like being at work or being exposed to someone that I knew had a cold. But just going out for a run and going out for a bike ride, you're just not spending that much time in anybody's near vicinity where you're going to be exposed to enough viral particles to catch a cold. And so based on my understanding of transmission, based on my real world experience, I've made the decision that I'm not going to wear a mask when I exercise. But again, this is an individual decision, and I leave it completely up to you. I've given you the evidence. I've given you the means to make that decision. And now you take with it and make that decision to do what you want. I carry a buff with me when I ride. I mitigate risk when I run. As I said, I don't stay close to people. When I'm passing going the other way, I make sure that I'm on the far side of the trail and give as much distance as possible. And I think by doing these things, you can keep your risk pretty darn low. Do you have a question for me to answer or to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doz at icloud.com. We are well into what should have been the race season for multi-sport, and yet, because of COVID-19, as I don't have to tell you, that is unfortunately not coming to pass. Instead of tapering and finalizing our preparation for races, triathletes around the world have far more questions than we do answers about how things are going to unfold from here and what racing will even look like whenever it returns. But as bad as the situation has been for athletes, it's even worse for race organizers. They are the ones whose entire businesses have been upended and are facing continued upheaval from the uncertainty that we all face. Add to this the shameful and selfish outrage that far too many athletes choose to share on social media about the lack of refunds for cancelled or postponed races, and you begin to understand the burden that these hardworking people who are the backbone of our sport are bearing. Well, joining me today is Lance Panagudi. 
Lance is the owner and operator of Without Limits, an organizer of many multi-sport events up and down the front range of Colorado. Lance is a vocal advocate of triathlon and has joined me once before to talk about what goes on behind the scenes of putting on a race in the happier times when that was still a thing. Well, I'm happy to have Lance back today to discuss the tough times that the industry is going through now and what he's thinking about for the future. Welcome once again to the TriDoc Podcast, Lance. No, thank you for having me back on, and and hopefully uh, when we do this again, it'll be under happier pretenses. Yes, I hope so. Well, for now, how has uh, the current situation affected uh, Without Limits? Yeah, to give a little background on my company, so in the springtime from March through the end of May, we do road cycling events, and then we transition to triathlon season. Our local triathlon season runs all the way through the end of September, and then we transition to cyclocross season. So we've been taking kind of season by season. And right now we've already had to cancel five road cycling races, which completely wiped out our entire spring road cycling season. And unfortunately about two weeks ago, we had to cancel our first triathlon of the year. It was scheduled for June 6th at Boulder reservoir and the city of Boulder suspended all of special event permits through June 15th with a possible extension of that suspension likely we'll find out here in a few weeks but we're kind of taking it week by week i mean i'd say race directors as a whole the community has definitely come together in a way that i've never seen before to really just creatively bounce different thoughts off each other and kind of see what everyone else is doing out there what everyone else is trying to gauge on the community because Every county, every city, every state is handling it a little bit differently. And I think one thing that the athletes don't really realize is that when they show up to an event, you're not just permitting with Boulder Reservoir. I mean, take that event, for example. You're permitting with the city of Boulder. Obviously, you're working with Boulder Reservoir that falls in city limits, but you're also dealing with Boulder County and then Colorado State Patrol. So you're dealing with three different entities for that single race. So when it comes to, is this race going to happen or not, it's not a simple call to just the county or the city. You're dealing with a lot of different entities that are working off different timelines when it comes to reopening. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of uncertainty makes it obviously incredibly difficult to manage a business. It makes it incredibly difficult for athletes to manage you know, their own expectations and training. How are you managing you know, rolling forward? In that environment of uncertainty, uh, do you have certain kinds of uh, plans going forward, or are you just keeping things on the calendar and just dealing with uh, the circumstances as they come up? Right now, and what we've told athletes is that 30 days out from each event, I mean, we're fortunate from the standpoint of we don't have a lot of athletes flying into our races. 98% of every event we produce is Colorado athletes. So we have a little bit more of a window flexibility in terms of letting athletes know well in advance if a race is going to happen or not. The window that we constructed was a 30-day model of we need to know from all permitting agencies if an event is going to happen or not 30 days out because that's a viable window for athletes to cancel hotel reservations, car rentals, if they were flying in or not, and just adequately prepare. Right Now, whether that's feasible or not, it is a different story. I mean, every couple of days we have different calls with the permitting agencies just to get different updates. And right now we're kind of in the middle of a confusing reopening stage. 
and, and I say confusing because I was just talking to another race director before this morning. And when things started to close down, it, it was confusing at a level of, all right, this is happening. This is what we're dealing with. These are the timeframes that we're dealing with, but we can manage it and we can get through it because it's a concrete closure deadline. I'd say reopening is so far from what I've seen more confusing because the people in charge don't even really know what their guidelines are in special events are kind of the last thing on everyone's list to reopen right now. So much of the focus is on retail stores, brick and mortar operations in limiting that group size where special events are kind of the outlier because their entire premise is based on a large group gathering. Yeah. And it's kind of, um, yeah, you know, it, as a healthcare provider, I, I'm sort of of two minds of this. I mean, part of me feels like, you know, this is a bunch of, for the most part, healthy people who aren't going to show up if they're sick. Uh, they're going to be outdoors, so it's not within a closed space. Uh, but at the same time, I also recognize they don't come by themselves. There are going to be, uh, you know, spectators with them, volunteers running the race. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's transition to deal with, uh, which is obviously a bit of a, a congregating area and a closed space, if you will. Um, as you start to consider what races might look like if and when things get back to some semblance of normality, have you considered how you might have to change things and, and how you might have to, you know, adapt your races uh, for uh, a at least until there's a vaccine out there or some kind of good treatment for this virus? I mean, that's been the fun part for the last two months is you're planning for your races to happen as if they're going to happen on schedule or June, July, August, whatever it is. But then you're also working on those contingencies for, all right, what happens if we have to postpone? What dates are available? What happens if we have to cancel? What does our budget look like for canceling just that race? What does your budget look like for canceling all races through June, through July? And then you're constructing a budget based on worst case scenario of what if events don't happen in 2020 at all? And how do we survive as a company while still focusing on giving as much back to the athlete as possible? Because, I mean, you've been in the sport for a long time. You know, a lot of race directors, you're well aware of the very slim margins that most races operate under. Most of the the registration money is pre-spent, if not overspent, back in January when all those orders are taking place for T-shirts, finisher medals, deposits, you name it. So I know every company is a little bit different and every event is a little bit different, but just talking to the majority of local race directors out there, if they had to refund, say, XYZ event, they get halfway through refunding all the athletes and then be forced into bankruptcy that the money just simply isn't there. So you're dealing with a lot of different factors when you look at the calendar and say, all right, if races are going to happen, what's going to be our threshold? Is the city going to limit us to 250 people to 500 people to a thousand people? And those answers just aren't clear right now. So we've put in plan, uh, a couple different plans that we presented to the cities in nothing set in stone in terms of we're going to follow these or they're going to be allowed. They're just plans right now. And obviously a time trial start is kind of the foundation that we look at. And then we looked at everything else to limit that group gathering size post race. So, you know, that typically most triathlons you cross the finish line and you're not allowed to reclaim your gear 
at a transition till everyone's either off the bike course and with some races, it's when everyone's finished. Should we be allowed to hold a race again? We've looked at creating a separate entrance and exit into transition to say, you know what? When you finish your race, if you want to go in and grab your bike and head home, that's okay. Just giving people as many options as possible to still participate, still be safe, but limit their exposure should they still be worried or a part of an at-risk group to leave the venue. And when you say time trial start, you're referring to rolling start for a swim, or are you talking about omitting a swim altogether? We're looking at both options. I mean, right now, and it's funny, when I go through my inbox, the majority of emails from athletes have been amazing. They've been super supportive, very understanding, just wanting to know how they can help out. And then the other handful of emails are are really people concerned about their inability to swim right now. I mean, pools are closed. There's no open water swimming open yet in Colorado. So most people are assuming that at some point they'll be able to race again, whether it's July or August, but very, very concerned about the swim. So another thing that we've looked at is creating a bike run option. And it's kind of just an open category those people wouldn't be eligible for age group awards or the triathlon awards, but just giving those people that are concerned as many options as possible where it makes sense. We've also looked at adding a duathlon option for races that can carry uh, an initial run before the bike. Yeah. I suspect duathlon is going to have a real resurgence in popularity. Uh, I talked to uh, Michelle uh, Lund uh, recently uh, from BBSC uh, triathlon or BBSC Multisport, and uh, they have duathlons at a lot of their events. And she said that, you know, very likely if uh, they get back, one of the things that they're going to do is obviously expand their duathlon offerings for exactly that reason, because a lot of people are concerned about the, the lack of swim training. And and that's something that WTC is really, you know, with the longer course events uh, at the half iron and Ironman distance, uh, they don't have that capability. So I'm kind of interested. But I, honestly, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing we're coming back to large gatherings in uh, this year. Uh, but, you know, 2021 is... Uh, I'm not sure we're going to have a vaccine by then. And and are we not going to be racing next year either? That That's something I don't really want to contemplate. So uh, I'm hopeful and, that... And I think know. from a from a race director community standpoint, at least in Colorado, there's been more questions than answers in, in the last couple of weeks. And hopefully there's a little bit more clarity as we get closer to summer. Yeah. And clarity can be bad news too. And yeah. we can prepare for the worst. But it's right now, it's a waiting game. And a lot of race directors I know... They have events in June. Some have events in October. They're, they're constructing their plans of it's going to happen or straight up cancellation and everything in between. Yeah. Um, have you thought about modifications to transition aside from letting people retrieve their things? Have you thought about spreading out transition? Is that something that uh, is a, a possibility? We're fortunate that most of our events range from 300 people all the way up to 800 people, and we have bike racks for up to 1,200 people. So it's a small measure, but we've talked about saying, you know what, put out every bike rack we own for the first race, let people space out as best they can, and just give people that peace of mind of, all right, I'm not going to be confined to this shoulder-to-shoulder transition area like they're typically used to. Right. And... 
What uh, are your concerns about the future for the sport? You mentioned, you know, that this whole year could be a, a write-off. Uh, do you fear that uh, some of the organizers locally are will be done if that comes to pass? I mean, I'm people who know me best know me as a, a eternal optimist. In, in over the last month, that has definitely been a put to the test. But I'm still optimistic about the sport from the standpoint of I've never seen more people out biking and running in my entire life. And I know I've seen a lot of people dusting off bikes or buying commuter bikes just because they want to stay fit. And I hope that causes a new wave of popularity for just the endurance community as a whole, because triathlon's not going anywhere. I mean, I look at when we started our company, it was 2007. It was the bottom of the housing market crash and all our midweek events were up during the recession. All our stroke and stride events at Boulder Res, those are just swim run events. They peaked from 2007 to 2010 at the bottom of the recession because people had more time on their hands. They wanted to stay fit. They wanted to stay active. And they weren't traveling as much. My biggest fear, if I did have to call it go to negative town, is that I think travel behavior is definitely going to be affected all the way through 2021. I just don't see that returning to normal for a long time. And some of that's based on a lot of fear out there or people just who knows what the state of the economy is going to be. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but when the economy takes a tank, people's travel behavior is restricted to their their home state. And for local events, that's not a bad thing. But for the larger scale events, it's going to take a toll. Yeah, and I, you know, that actually could be a bit of a saving grace for local organizers like yourself. Like you said earlier, uh, uh, you know, most of your athletes tend to be locals, and I mean, if the if people aren't able to travel, they tend to probably shift their focus to some of the local events, which would be nice to see a resurgence of uh, local races again. Well, and uh, more offerings potentially too. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, I want to finish with something you've already alluded to, which is, uh, you know, and I mentioned it in the intro, which is the, um, you know, fortunately, not all that frequent, but still very vocal uh, people who, uh, you know, understandably, uh, in this time of economic hardship, and, uh, you know, a time that is certainly hard on everybody right now, complaining about lack of refunds. Um, as a race organizer, you've mentioned already that uh, that's just not possible for the most part, because, uh, you know, that money is spent. But uh, what can you say to the athletes who are out there making a real, you know, they're impassioned for sure, but certainly I think on a lot of levels wrongheaded. Uh, what would you say to them specifically if you had the chance? I mean, every event's a little bit different. Every event company is set up a little bit different. I did a, a video that we've been pushing, and really it was my chance to talk to the community and let them know that, hey, even when an event cancels, if they are keeping your money or offering a partial credit or a rollover to a new event, I guarantee that race is still taking a loss. For me personally, I haven't taken a salary from my company since the end of February. And I say that not looking for sympathy or support from the community, just from a standpoint of I want my events to have every possible chance to succeed, whether it's in 2020 or to have a return in 2021. And I know other race directors who have taken that very same mindset. My staff, who has done work for events in July, August, September, I've also committed to paying them 
And I'm not going to turn around and say, you know what, you've been working on this project for five months now, just because we have to cancel means you don't get paid anymore. To, to me, that's not fair to staff that's been with me for 10 plus years. And hopefully we'll come back next year when we're all back up and running. So I'd say to those athletes, stay patient. And whether it's a local race, whether it's an Ironman race, there's very committed people right now that are working probably twice as hard over time in not getting paid for that. And to understand that it's easy to say we're all in this together and we're all hurting and suffering, but kind of look at the bigger picture of where is that $75 entry or $125 entry better served to help a race survive and happen again in 2021 or, or back in your pocket, knowing that that company and that race might not exist anymore. And that is very well said. And uh, pretty much what I've been also advocating from the beginning of all of this. And, uh, you know, it really does come down to we're all in it together. And I know that sounds a little trite, but uh, you know, when uh, this is affecting everybody worldwide, it, it, it is hard to stop thinking about yourself, but it's so important if we're going to make it through. So thank you for that. Uh, Lance Panagudi is the owner and operator of Without Limit Sports here in Colorado. He's a organizer of many cycling, cyclocross and triathlon races uh, up and down the front range throughout the spring, summer and fall and hopefully very hopefully we'll be uh, seeing him again soon out there on the course. Uh, if not uh, later on this summer, then certainly back in 2021. Lance, thank you so much again for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. No, thank you. And hopefully next time we talk, it's back on the start line. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Do you have comments about the new format? Or do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? If any of those are true, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. It's easy, I promise. Not like navigating a swing gate on some country road or anything. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question to answer, and I'll start my exploration into why triathlon remains so persistently racially homogenous, as told by the participants who make up the small proportion of diversity athletes who get to the start line every year. Until then, remember, no justice, no peace, and train hard, train healthy. <laughs>